Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. I actually have a very simple philosophy, and it was a phrase I used to use a lot, which is be really, really hard on the work and really soft on the people. My guest today is David Nobe, fondly known as Nobby. He's a renowned ad man and creative director for the world's largest advertising groups around the globe, and he's also a dear friend. Nobby is a larger-than-life personality with a unique perspective on the creative industry and the disruption which has taken place in the advertising world. He's an incredible storyteller who looks at life through a unique lens. Nobby's best advice for creating high-performance creative teams is be soft on the people and hard on the work. Welcome to Design Your Life, Nobby. You've worked all over the world, haven't you? I mean, you're highly regarded in the um, in the advertising world and the creative industry in general. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Allegedly. It's interesting you say that. You kind of, typically with not much thought. Do you, do you think your life has been that way? Has, has your life kind of... Has it been a, a, a kind of um, events just kind of happened to you? Yeah, I, I remember that I was, um, uh, this was about 2000. I was working in New York and I was creative director of a big agency there called Bozell, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was a big agency. It was about 700 people. Wow. Um, big clients like New York Times, Bank of America. We used to do the Got Milk stuff and all this, all this kind of big stuff. And I was, um, uh, Bob Isherwood and Kevin Roberts reached out to me from Saatchi's, um, who I hadn't met, but they wanted to talk to me. And so I went over and I met Kevin Roberts, who's, you know, he's famously quite a character. But I remember going through my work and explaining my, um, how I'd got there. And I said, look, you know, I was in London and then I moved to Hong Kong and I was in Hong Kong for a while. And then I went to London and then I started an agency and then I went to San Francisco and then I went to Melbourne and then I went to London and... And he was like, why? And I said, well, I met this girl when I was in London and I was in this bar and I met this guy. And, and I remember, I'll never forget, he said, and I, and I think it was a compliment, he said, look, you, you haven't had a career, you've had a series of fucking accidents, mm-hmm. which I took as a compliment. And I think it's true, <laughs> you, know, I, I, I think, you know. I think we were saying earlier, I mean, I'm, I'm inherently wary of anyone I interview who tells me that from the moment they woke up, um, as a as a student, they wanted to be in advertising, mm-hmm. and everything they'd done had got them to this interview. Because yeah. I think the best people I know in advertising um, kind of tripped over and fell into it, and they brought lots of other things with it. So I, I think I think I've always had a, depending on when when it is in my career, either a healthy or an unhealthy disrespect for advertising. In as much as I th- I just saw it as this amazing opportunity to travel an amazing opportunity to have fun, to make things, to work with amazing people, and they paid you for it. And so hence I, I, I travelled a lot. Yeah, you, you, you have. I mean, I've known you for quite a while now. I mean, in fact, we met through um, Ronnie Kahn at Osharvest. You introduced right, me yeah. to her, I don't know when it was. Was it like eight years ago or seven years yeah, ago? Yeah, I was, I, was um, I was at Droga. Yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, you, you, you reached out and said, hey, or I can't remember how it happened, but you said you should... <laughs> I think you were offloading her, basically. <laughs> I did. You've done so much with her, and then you kind of go, let's do get someone else involved. Yeah, t- I, well, yeah, I, I, she's, she's an amazing woman, as you well know. She's also probably one of the most impossible people to say no to. And I had done the CEO cook-off and uh, hadn't actually met her, but I'd done the CEO cook-off. And Todd Sampson had <laughs> – she'd obviously approached Todd and said, listen, I want you to help me put together a whole new brand. 
And obviously, he's a busy boy. And he said, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to this guy, Nobby. He's a drogophile. He's your man. And so he kind of, much as I did with you, he kind of palmed me off um, or palmed her off to me. The, different, and, the difference was, though, that you actually done some incredible thinking on that project. I don't, yeah, know, I I don't know if he did. did. Was it his thinking passed on to you? No, no, I, I can't give him credit for that. Uh, the, the reality is that, that I, I do remember this very specifically, that we were right in the middle of an enormous um, pro bono project for the UN. Mm-hmm. That we ended up doing Beyonce, and it was this, it was this ridiculously ambitious project that um, made no sense financially and that made, certainly made no sense in terms of geography, but we were committed to doing this enormous project out of um, initially out of Sydney that, um, uh, that, that culminated in this huge event in the General Assembly with Beyonce and Ridley Scott's company and all this crazy stuff. And it was just sucking us dry. It, I mean, you do a lot of pro bono. Mm. It's like one of those things with the best thanks will. Thanks to you, yeah. Thanks to <laughs> <laughs> with, with the With the best will in the world, it was really sucking us dry. And, and this is the point where Ronnie came into my life and I – you know, I, I knew her and respected her enough to certainly say, yes, by all means, love to come in and talk to you. But I remember briefing my partners at the time, which was Sadeep, Gohel and, 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 and Wayne McPhee, and I said, listen, this is the deal. There's this woman coming in. She is notoriously charismatic. She is going to pitch for us to do Oz Harvest. Whatever happens, just look at me, say no, say no. Whatever happens, smile, be courteous, but say no. And Ronnie did her spiel and she did her thing. And you could see the other guys looking at me and winking like, here's where Nobby says no. And I said, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> and uh, and, and Ronnie, God bless. I remember at the time, I'm, I, I hope it wasn't crocodile tears, but Ronnie cried, which, um, which, was, which was, you know, powerful. And we hugged and I said, okay, you know, let's, let's go for it. And we ended up, Ronnie and I specifically, we, I came up with so many project ideas. And because I'm probably like you, I find it very difficult. I don't have a mid-gear. Mm. And that's really tough in this business, but if I if I commit to something, I really try and do it, and I try and make it big. And I ultimately ended up presenting hundreds of ideas with Ronnie, and I ended up doing lots of presentations to boards and sponsors, and and ultimately the only thing that we did, which I thought got some traction and was useful, was the beginnings of a design idea. But equally, I realised we weren't a design company, and uh, and it needed a lot more attention and care. And I knew you, and I um, I passed her on, and the rest is oh, history. And it was incredible. I mean, I, as I said, a lot of thinking, a lot of big thinking was already done. You certainly set it up well. Uh, you weren't just offloading for like an easier time, but no. but certainly, uh, you know, sometimes it happens in your life when you meet somebody and you go, "Oh my God, this person actually not well." You as well, sorry, mm-hmm. but Ronnie, is that uh, although you can't say no to the, to, to her? It's, it's, um, in fact, I, I interviewed her in the last last week on, on a, know, she did a yeah. podcast, so that's cool. But um, that energy, that passion, that determination, and the appreciation of what you're doing is 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 this the best relationship? Yeah, because you're doing good, you're doing it for the right reasons. You've got amazing people who are very supportive around you. Yeah. Yes, there might not be as much money as there is in other projects, but there's still a big idea. Yeah. And it still needs your help to make it come to life. So I just think we worked with them for you know for all that time since still today, working with them. And I just feel like that's incredibly rewarding. So I thank you for that. Oh well, look, I mean, mate. all jokies. Every time I see a Van Gogh past or I see one of your books, I mean, you, you've 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 more than honoured uh, her brand, and uh, no, she's got a lot to thank you for. Kangaroo Valley, um, you get a place down there. You've had a place down there for um, a number of years. Yeah. And why? What, what, what brought that about? 
Well, initially, what brought it about? It was just very simple. My my wife, when I when I moved to Sydney in two thousand and two, my beautiful wife Nicole. We've been married now for a long time, at fifteen years. But she had friends in Kangaroo Valley, um, and she'd been going down there for years. So when I first, I mean, I'd lived in Melbourne, and and my, I guess my uh, my take on Sydney was all about beaches. It was Bondi and all that stuff, and. And one day she took me to Kangaroo Valley, and for those of you who haven't been, it's uh, it's two hours from towards Wollongong. It's in the Southern Highlands, but it's it's even within the Southern Highlands, it's a very special place because it, it it's in a field, it's in a valley. And for example, I just drove back yesterday, and and because it's cold here, there's you're above the clouds. I mean, you literally, it's the most incredible thing. You drive down the mountain through the mist, and you are in this kind of mystical, magical place. And uh, and it just from the moment I went there, I had some, whatever you want to call it, I had some uh, connection. spiritual connection with it, and we ended up renting there a lot to the point that I was like, look, we should buy somewhere. We're spending so much money renting somewhere. And we bought a little shack, which we adored, and my wife's an interior designer, as you know, and so she took this scruffy little shack and she kind of did lots of clever things with it. And it was just a great little weekender. Small little place just on the road. We used to leave the keys in the barbecue, very casual. And my daughter grew up there and it was fantastic. Um, and the only issue with it was there was neighbours. And not that the neighbours were bad, but I just, I mean, I didn't grow up with money. And and my, always my aspiration of wealth has never been, you know, silly cars and boats and planes and all that kind of stuff. It was just, to me, the ultimate wealth is just to have your own space, where, where people can't see you. Um, and so, uh, you know, um, some money came in, which was the early days of Droga, and, uh, and I thought rather than burn through it, why don't I just see if I can find a piece of land? Mm-hmm. So it took me about two years to find the land because actually my, my brief to the agents was, um, which I didn't realise at the time was so tough, but I said I don't want to see a single telegraph pole. <laughs> I want a piece of land where not only do I not see houses around me, I don't, I don't see any... Evidence of man. Yeah. And uh, ultimately they gave up. And then one day I was just driving around. I saw this little sign. I drove up a lane and there was this entirely impractical block. I mean, you've seen it mm-hmm. since. There's a huge amount of work being done. It had no road, no water, n- nothing. But it was just has this insane view of the mountains. And I remember I drove my wife crazy because I, I bought it on the spot. And uh, we just had my daughter, and she was like, "This is the stupidest thing you've ever done." We can't even you couldn't push push a pram on it. It's got snakes everywhere. Oh Not God. that it does really. Well, so she had no say in it. She didn't. She didn't. Well, it's funny because now, of course, she she adores it, and yeah. I remind her that you didn't like it at the time, but I could. You see had a it. vision. I had a vision, but no, I, I literally walked onto this piece of land, and and whether you but you've been on the land, but for many years there, there, I, it was just the land I had the other cottage and I just owned this this amazing piece of bush and there's kangaroos everywhere there's wildlife mm-hmm. everywhere um, there's eagles it's crazy beautiful and I would just um, on a hot day just, just drive up there in my car like literally onto the mountain put a towel down and just sit there in the middle of all this bush and and smoke a cigar and just, just listen to the mountain and it, it is the most it's a very spiritual space, yep. and uh, and we've been very lucky. So for the last three years, we've been developing it. We now have a house on it. As you know, yeah, we have water, beautiful. we have hot water, and, yeah. and all that stuff. And, and it's, it's black. Um, it's black, which I know you'll be very happy about. Yeah, it's a big black barn, 
and I'm building an art studio up there and various other things. Um, but no, it's very special. It's and I'm, I'm incredibly, uh, incredibly lucky. So is that your, like your zone, your kind of zen space? I tell you something I find wonderful. I, I was there, and and again, in, maybe this kind of talks a little bit about your design, your life. So remarkably, well, let's hope so. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> you have to edit the other half out. Yeah. Um, no, I think what's wonderful about it is uh, the, the cliche would be it's some way where you escape because it's literally, you know, it's the middle of nowhere. And as I said, you know, you, I, I was there this weekend and, and I wait. So this is a classic, classic morning there. I wake up early because you, you tend to go to bed early, which is mm-hmm. great in the, in the country. I wake up early. It's freezing cold. I get a fire going. I open up the front curtains. There's about 20 kangaroos on the front lawn. In the Ooh. mist, the most you've seen the pictures. Most yeah, beautiful yeah. thing, like kangaroos in the mist on your front lawn, and I have sculptures as well, as you know. Yeah. So the whole thing is pretty amazing, because it's like seven in the morning. Everyone's asleep except America, and I have uh, a job going on at the moment in the, in LA. So I call up this guy in LA, and we do a conference call, and we're having this conference call about this really interesting job I'm hopefully working on, and yeah. it's blah 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 blah. And that's what I love. I love. I'm sitting there with a, my little Nespresso cup of coffee, you know, with a blanket wrapped around me because it's so cold, looking at kangaroos. Like if, if the person talking to me who's in Abbot Kinney, you know, in a busy, you know, in a busy classic design studio, if he could see where I was, it would blow his mind. Mm. But, but that to me is what's exciting about the industry now. I mean, I literally, I send him some ideas, he sends me some ideas, but I don't have to leave that space. Yeah. Do you see yourself spending more and more time down there as a result? Yeah, I do. I, I, I don't see, look, to, to me, um, one of the things, when I remember when I, I first um, ran Saatchi's, my, my predecessor, he's a lovely man, but he had a very different point of view about timekeeping. So when I first started Saatchi's, I remember people saying, look, you know, um, you know we've got to get in early and, and we've got to clock on and I've got to take my kids to school, so is it okay if I turn up at nine instead of eight, you know, all this stuff. Mm. And I, I, it's always the been my school. point of view. I just said... I really don't give a fuck when you turn up. All I care about is when there's a review, you bring in amazing work. Mm-hmm. How you get there is of no importance to me. You're not, you're not going to get brownie points because I see you leaving late or coming early. And, and I truly believe that and I've mm-hmm. always believed that. And so for me it's, it's, it's completely consistent that just because I'm out in Kangaroo Valley for half the week, I'm not doing my best work. Mm-hmm. I, I also think, and you know this. You, I mean, your building is beautiful, and I, I love I love the environment you've created. I think one of the sad things about what's happening to the industry is because there is less and less um, currency around creative people in every sense. Uh, there is less uh, pressure on business owners to create wonderful environments for us. You know, I mean, I remember when I first got into the industry. A lot of the conversations we'd have as a company, whether it be at Saatchi's or Droger or back in New York, was what kind of incredible environment we want to create so that the people here can do their best work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and a lot of time and money was invested in those conversations mm-hmm. and a lot of pride in the space. Yep. Now, as you know, it's about how many people you can cram into a space. And so I think, you know, uh, that's sad, and, but I think it's, it's, it's uh, consistent around the world. But if that's going to happen, then you, people are going to have to. In some cases, as we know, some young creative team, they just go down the road and they work in a cafe. Yeah. 
Mm. In my case, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky because I can just go down the road and be at the country. I think what you just said too earlier is like you, you don't have a, a mid-gear. You're, you're big on ideas. Mm. You're huge on connecting people. But, you know, it's like it seems to be your mind works in a very different way to a lot of other people I know um, where you're on, you know, you're out, you're out there connecting and making things, making shit happen. And, and, uh, and that takes a lot of – that's something that's coming from inside, obviously. There's something deep inside you. That, are you doing because you want to help people or do you go, I need to sort this shit out? Um, I mean, I, I think one is that you do get connected to causes that for whatever reason connect with you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I did a lot of work with UNICEF, a lot of work with the UN. I'm doing a lot of work at the moment, as you know, with Creative Spirit and some yeah. other things. So they have to connect with you. Um but I think, you know, I, I have – people have said that before and they've said that, you know, Anobi's an amazing delegator or he's an amazing connector. I think if I'm, if I'm honest, I think it's two things. One is I'm, I've always been lucky and I do see this as a, as, as a quite a rare gift, which is um, I've always been very, very comfortable with collaborating. I mean, I've, I've worked with some great creative directors. I've trained some people have gone on to be great, great creative directors. And, and, and one of the things that I've always been aware of is, and I, and I think this would be true outside advertising in any creative industry, but insecurity is the cancer of our industry. Mm-hmm. It really is. I mean, it, it, you, you can show me the, um, you know, you can show me the end result of it, whether it be people being bitchy or people being nasty or or just crap work, but I can always, those are symptoms, I can always bring it back to someone could have handed it off to someone who could have added value and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And they didn't because on some level their ego said, I will lose something. And I've always trained my guys, and they all know this from day one, from all of the agencies I've worked in. Um, And there's a simple logic, which is better to have, you know, 20 names on on a gold and one name on a on a fine list, you know. Mm-hmm. Not that awards are everything, but it's a it's a good it's a good metaphor, and um, and I think you know I've always been very comfortable with the with the the role of connector or author or producer. I've never felt the need to touch everything. I mean, I, I'm just naturally not a backseat driver. Well, it's interesting, said because obviously when you start off as a you know an art or an artist or mm-hmm. um, which is tends to be a you know. It's one person making their art and what they believe in. To actually step back and be comfortable with co-creation or comfortable with working collaboratively with teams, etc. That's quite a shift for a lot of people. Don't actually make. Mm. So, were you, did you feel na- are you naturally social and naturally aware of the bigger picture? Look, I, I think it's a few things. I mean, I think there is a there is a uh, a kind of professional snobism that I have, which is I, I really like to be around very, very good people in terms of craft. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not snobism, I think, in a negative sense that, you know, you want to be around famous people. But, but you know, you know we, we have this situation in this country. We are just, there is such a surplus of truly fantastic craft people in every corner, mm-hmm. um, in every corner from from music to design to, you know, someone that does something weird with leather, whatever. And, and I'm curious and I get bored easily. So as soon as I find these people, whatever tiny thing they do, you know, if it's someone who someone introduce, introduces me to who, 
who just has doesn't have a business. They just do something wonderful with leather. I log that. You know, if there's an actor's voice I hear that I meet, if the, all of these things I log it. Mm-hmm. And to me, um, you know, I love to cook, and I think cooking is a is a very good metaphor for me for for how I see advertising, which is, you know, it, 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 the best creative people, certainly the best creative directors, are just alchemists. You know, they find ways to put together ingredients, mm-hmm. and and for me, that's the joy of it. What's this leather thing you keep referring to? I was hoping you weren't going to not go chaps. There. No. <laughs> I'm not having some chats. There's nothing to do with S&M. Okay. No, but I, I say that because, you know, increasingly, I mean, as you know, I've got more and more um, interested in the art world and artists, um, certainly in the last 10 years since I've been doing a lot more in that space. And it's wonderful because to some extent, you know, um, as much as we're constantly being shown new and wonderful toys and advertising, it kind of bores me. Um, it's very rare that someone shows me a new whiz-bang gizmo and it excites me as much, for instance, as being at some art show and seeing that someone has been able to make, you know, um, graphite do something it's never done before or played with glass in a different way or, or in this case, you know, taken leather and, and reimagined it. That kind of thing excites me a lot more than, um, you know, a new app that lets you, you know, look at content differently. So, so how do you and how have you dealt with working with, you know, big corporations on, you know, advertising their products? Certainly you would be, feel quite cynical about that, wouldn't you? No, I'm not. Look, I mean, it's funny. I mean, when I originally, um, you know, got to know David Droger and obviously we went on to work together and, th- and he's not the only one. There's some other people as well. But I, I, I do think there are, there are people who to some extent are freaks um, and I would count myself amongst them, and, and it was certainly what connected David and I originally, which is, uh, I mean, I know, and, and I won't name any names, and we all know them, there are some creative directors who've gone on to be managing directors, and they were never great creative directors. They were average creative people who really, in their bones, they just wanted to manage everything, and, and they do a great job of that. <clears throat> and equally, I know probably even more so amazing craft people who for whatever reason have been elevated to a point where they're not making craft now they're having to organize meetings and they're having to get in front of clients and they're really bad at that and i think that's the norm and that's that's the average and and that's what you would expect from most people to have a you know to be either one way or the other and i do think um it's not just in advertising i think it's in all areas but there are there are these freaks and I think, you know, you're someone who, you know, I know if, if I get you on the tools and you and I are just working on the pure craft of something, then you are a craftsperson and the conversations I'm having with you are entirely about craft. Mm-hmm. But the next day we might be talking about transforming business. And I find both conversations equally exciting. Mm. And I find um, – and, and I think if I was doing one or the other, I think I'd be bored. So you've always been a generalist. Well, I don't like the word generalist because the generalist, it's like when, you know, you know, because as you know, I mean, I, I've done plays, I'm working on a, this new film, I've got, I've done a, an art show and poetry is a big thing. And, and when people hear that, you know, you invariably, they'll say, oh, you're a Renaissance man. And as much as maybe some of them genuinely know what a Renaissance is or a Renaissance man is, I think most of them, what they're saying is you're, you're a jack of all trades or a generalist. And, and the inference is 
that you haven't worked out what you're really good at and you're just kind of a bit of a scatterbrain. And, and so in that sense, no, I don't think I'm a generalist. I, I think one informs the other. I think the reason why my creative work has been um, successful, when it has been successful, is because it's informed by business strategy. And equally, I think the reason why I um, have the, the, I don't know, the gravitas or the power I have inside a boardroom where everyone looks exactly the opposite to me mm-hmm. is I go in there, you know, covered in tattoos and, and looking like a drug dealer and you've got, uh, you know, a board of suits. But when I start talking, they quickly realise I'm having a serious conversation about business. Mm-hmm. Um, but those conversations are interesting because they're informed by my knowledge of creativity. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't think I'm a generalist. I, I'd like to think that, you know, I, I can, I'm, I'm bilingual might be a better way of putting it. Yeah. Well, where do you see the creative industry going? Because obviously you know, they're all kind of merging. Advertising is not what it was before. Mm. Uh, our industry in design is, is changing rapidly. The big consultants are now doing design, you know, having creative process in their whole mm. ideation uh, mix. I mean, what, 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 what are we heading to? Well, I, I, I think there's, there's two answers, I mean, for me. I mean, one is, I guess, the advertising industry. and the advertise, it's, it's no secret the advertising industry is massively disrupted. I'm actually reading a book at the moment by a guy from The New Yorker called Frenemies, um, which was a, a, a phrase actually I think coined by Martin Sorrell about this idea that, you know, 20 years ago the media agencies were our, were our, were our friends and production companies were our friends and design companies were our friends. You know, if you were an advertising agency, everyone sort of fed off you mm-hmm. and there was a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the big uh, disruption has been they've become frenemies. And, and for a simple reason, and it's not no one's fault, the simple reason is, um, and I always use the analogy of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of uh, the African plains, not that I know anything about the African plains, but it feels to me like there is a, there is a complete mismatch in the ecosystem and by which I mean there was a time if you continue the metaphor there's a time when I first got in the business where you know when you looked at the plains of Africa that were our landscape there was huge hierarchies of predators and huge hierarchies of prey so for example if you were a lion then you weren't interested with you know chasing around a rabbit because there's plenty of antelopes. Mm-hmm. And if you're a jackal, you wouldn't even think about going after the antelope because everyone kind of was, there was food for everyone. Um, and, and I think part of that also nurtured a sense of respect that people were like, that's, that's that kind of stuff and I can do this kind of stuff and I'm a little boutique agency so I've got this cool little boutique client and I'm a big agency so I've got Procter & Gamble. And, and certainly, I mean, I think this is a global thing, but I think it's certainly acutely probably even more true in Australia, which as we know is this huge country with this tiny population, is there's too many prey and not enough food. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I read recently, um, I'm pretty sure that there's evidence to back this up, that, that Australia has the highest um, per capita of people who would identify themselves as working in the creative industry, whatever that is, whether that be design or film or whatever, per capita. And we know why, because people don't come here to do great work. They come here because, you know, they've had enough of living in London. They've had enough of the rain, Mm -hmm. um, although we've got that today. I mean, people come here to live. And creative people especially, I think, are drawn here to live, whether they're filmmakers or ad people or designers or writers Mm -hmm. or whatever. 
as a result, we have too many good people. Um, I mean, there are. I mean, I'm acutely aware when we set up Marcel, I was I was in, humbled by the amount of good agencies around us. You know, I mean, one of my first questions when I spoke to publicists is, "Do you think we need another agency?" Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. Um, and uh, and I think it's a real issue. So I, I, I think ultimately, yes, everything's going to change. It's going to change because there's not enough food. Um, I also think there's a there's a positive swing as well, which is which is maybe a broader answer, not just talking about the ad industry. I would like to. I had this conversation with a friend of mine the other day, who um, you know, who, who John Hardigan actually, he used to run uh, News Limited, and we were talking about the disruption. I mean, obviously, he he grew up with newspapers, and that's to a large extent quieting down. And I grew up with um, traditional advertising, and we were both talking about disruption. And I think the reality is that I think there's going to be, I hope, I pray, there is going to be a return to craft and, and, and in, in its true sense because I think, I think the average person is getting drunk on technology. I think we've seen what's happened with Facebook. I mean, we all love Facebook and I used to use it way too much and then suddenly one day you're just drunk on it. You're thinking, why am I using Facebook so much? Well, how is it changing my life? I, I think the same is true of 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 will happen with VR, with AI, um, with all these multi screens, all this stuff. That don't don't get me wrong, all of this stuff is important. But somewhere in the conversation in the last twenty years, it became more important than the thing you put on it. Mm-hmm. And the result of that is that creative people, um, the people who put the content on those platforms were relegated. Suddenly the, the, their conversation became less important than the conversation about the people who made the kit. And I think that's going to change, uh, hopefully in my lifetime. Mm. But do you think, um, I, I feel like uh, that I'm saturated by this technology. I'm saturated by the, you know, my smartphone constantly on, constantly looking, constantly being bombarded with information. I mean, I find that highly disruptive um, it affects my energy in a negative mm. way. Um, and I see people around me and it's now been kind of classified as a fact that this is actually detrimental to, to one's health. And, mm. um, I mean, I'm nervous about that. But I think, like I said, I, I don't know. If, I mean, I have no doubt that the, and, I, and this isn't my point of view. I mean, there's a thousand, but I mean, they were talking about it in Cannes, I'm sure, last, uh, last week. Mm-hmm. The, the industry is it, it, not for debate. It is changing. It's changing shape, all of those things. But I do think, you know, and here's an example, a positive example. I remember when I was at Droga, we worked with William Morris a lot and, uh, and we were in L.A. and talking to the guys at William Morris about pop culture and about music. And, and one of the things one of the guys there said, which I was, thought was fascinating, which was if you look at um, the resurgence and this huge rise in live, right? so I'm talking about everything from live theatre, mm-hmm. festivals, comedy clubs, all these things, which are, um, they're things that 15 years ago, if someone came to you as a venture capitalist and said, listen, we're going to create all these comedy clubs. We're going to create this amazing outdoor festival. We're going to reinvest in theatre. You'd be told you're mad because logically they'd say, no, hang on, you're crazy. The screens, the level of um, sophistication around content the way that you can interact with content through VR and all these wonderful things, why would anyone queue up in the rain to go into a comedy club? And what we're seeing is the opposite. And I think the reason we're seeing the opposite is not because of my generation or yours, it's because of my my son's generation. My son's like 24. 
when he gets excited, and I'm sure your kid's the same, they're not excited about technology because that to them is like water. That's like us being excited about taps and bikes. <laughs> and, you know, just think they're, they're just utilitarian. They're things we grew up with. But my point is um, you talk to, and I hate to use the phrase young people, but you, you talk to a, a, a lot of young people like my son and he will wax lyrical about a book he read um, that's a real book that he's got stuffed in the back of his pocket. Mm -hmm. He will talk about a concert that he went to. He'll talk about this jazz club he found, which is amazing. There's only like 10 people in there and this guy with a snare drum. And what he's reacting to is like crack. It's like because for him it's a new thing. It's this visceral drug that you and I grew up with. We grew up in standing in the rain um, listening to music. But this whole generation didn't. And I think... You know, all of that is going to power, I think, a return to experience mm-hmm. and hopefully a return to uh, craft and an eccentricity. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I, but I, I do see that as a counterpoint to mm. what's happening. That's interesting. I think, I think also just when you're talking about that, I was just thinking about your role as a creative chairman, creative director for, for a number of years. It's around about insp- inspiring others, mm-hmm. helping others to have great ideas or happen- helping others to be successful. Mm. How, do you, how do you do that? I mean, without doing it for them. I mean, because that's kind of the hard thing a lot of creators find is that when they have that kind of a being a guide, mm. it's often easier to get back onto the tools and say, hey, give it to me, I'll sort it out. I, I actually have a very simple philosophy and, and it was actually quite, um, it was quite sweet, like a long time, I think it was about 10 years ago, um, Michael Lynch, you know, he's he's got that campaign brief magazine. He actually, without telling me, he did a piece on all the creative directors that I had trained. And there was about 15 of these creative directors who were all over the world who at some point had come through, had come through my department. Um, they all said the same thing, which is in, in different words, which is the thing Nobby really pushed hard at us and the thing that hopefully they've picked up. And it was a phrase I used to use a lot, which is, be really, really hard on the work and really soft on the people. Mm-hmm. And and this wasn't because I was a particularly nice person or altruistic or a, or a hippie. It was because as a creative director, all you want is people to come into your room with broken ideas, amazing broken ideas. Now, if you create an environment where people are in any way they're going to pull their punch, if they feel they're going to get fired, if they feel that you don't love them, yep. if they feel you don't respect them, you know what they'll do? They'll pre-edit the ideas before they come in your room. Mm-hmm. And a, a case in point was Saatchi's. I mean, one of the things when I came to Saatchi's that, that surprised a lot of people is where they'd been quite a fallow period at Saatchi's. And not just because of me, there was some amazing people that came in with me, but the group of people that, that, that redesigned Saatchi's in those days, we, we were agency of the year. We dominated um, for a long time. It was the kind of, and other agencies since then, you know, like Clemenges have done it, the Monkeys have done it. But for three or four years, Saatchi Sydney really dominated. Um, and what surprised a lot of people is we dominated with the same people who had pretty much been doing nothing the three years before. So it wasn't a case of I'd come in, I'd fired everyone, and then we got these great people in. And all I did was, um, and it's something I've done, you know, in previous places, I spent the first two weeks asking every single person in the creative department to come in on their own and just bring three pieces of work they loved. And whether they'd been made or not, whether they did them another agency, whether they were just scribbles, because I wanted to understand who they were. Then we talked about them. 
And then we talked about the people and I got to know them. And often I would discover, for instance, that this person is a beautiful, beautiful writer, but the work he's been doing is horrible. Like, why is that? Maybe that's because he doesn't feel empowered. Maybe that's because he's got the wrong partner, whatever. And then what I did is there was a couple of, you know, complete rogues that I got rid of. But 90% of the people who were there, I saw something in them. And then mm -hmm. I spent about six months loving the shit out of them. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in a literal sense of taking them over to the pub every day. We laughed a lot. We relaxed a lot. No pressure. I took all the pressure off people. Mm -hmm. And then this magic thing happened, which is they started bringing me in stupid ideas. Because when a creative person feels entirely safe yep. and secure, this is what happens. They come in and they go, Nobby, I got this idea. It is so stupid. It's off brief. And I know we don't even have the money to do it. And it's crazy, but blah. Yep. And you hear it and two things will happen. Like, Well, three things. One is you say, Vince, you're absolutely right. That's the stupidest fucking idea I've ever had. <laughs> but you're laughing because you know I love you and yeah. you know this doesn't mean anything more than this idea. So it's the work. Yeah. Or I go, that is absolutely fucking brilliant. I get 20 people in and we start building it. Mm -hmm. Or we say, you're right, it is a stupid idea, but it gets us to a more interesting conversation that gets us to work. Yeah. And that's the magic trick and that's what happened. And, and, and the proof of that, like I said, is the same 30-odd people suddenly were agents of the year three years in a row. But I think, I mean, if, if, people, if, if people learn anything, that simple idea, which is be soft on people and hard on the work, and I think yeah. a lot of people get it wrong. Yeah. A lot of creative, creative directors project their own pressure and tension on the people around them. Yeah. And then they're surprised by when those people come in the room and they pull their punch. They don't show the magic. They show something that they know they're not going to get shouted at about. Wow. You that, got that was worth it. Speechless. All that rubbish you talked before. You can edit, you can edit all that other <laughs> shit out. Just, just, just play that bit. That is, that is incredible. And that's made me think about my company more now. I'm going to go back and uh, talk to my guys about that. You need that. to cuddle Safety everyone. Safety zone. Yeah. Cuddle everyone. It's true, though, because – and I feel it myself and you feel it yourself. You know, the best work I've ever done um, has been in an environment where I didn't feel pressure. I didn't feel like I was going to fail. I felt like I was in a secure place. I felt like the people who were working with me really respected me and they loved me. Um, and then they just let me play, mm. you know. And I can look at all of my favorite work. It's always been in that environment. So I don't think it's peculiar. So I've seen, I mean, I won't name the client, but I know that there's been times when we've chatted mm. and we've had similar clients and you've been... Like you've you've sacked a client, I think, haven't you? A few I've, times, I've, probably. I've, well, I, is that is that because you're protecting the idea, or they don't get the idea, or you're protecting your, you're being soft on your team? No, I, I I have let go of some clients. I I have probably more often forced clients to let go of me. Let go. Um, that look, that sounds so nice know, and, and, um, and easy, doesn't I'm it? I'm sure it was more brutal at the time. <laughs> look, look. The reality is that. Um, I think there's something that anyone who runs an agency will be aware of is there's this, there's this paradox whereby a client will pitch and they'll have lots and lots of agencies and you will come at them as strangers, which is always wonderful because you're objective, and you show them a beautiful new way of doing things and they become enamoured by that and they become enamoured by your strategy and they become inspired by how fresh the work is mm -hmm. and you win the pitch. Wonderful, right? And this has happened to some enormous clients for, for me. And then three months later, you're producing crap. And it doesn't make sense because the same people that bought into all that mm -hmm. beautiful thinking. And I think what happens is, unfortunately, and, and I don't want to be just, you know, it's not about, I mean, clients are human and clients are, 
you know, I think it's a tougher time than ever to be a client. I really I respect that. But the reality is, and, and we see it in a much more microcosmic way any day you present work. If you present a new design for a client and the first time you show it, the first five seconds, they will react as a human. Their visceral reaction will be entirely human and they'll go, oh, I love it. It's weird. It's, oh, I love it, right? And for the next two weeks, they will dehumanize their opinion. Mm. They will then step away from it. They'll put it in a big room. They'll overthink it. And suddenly they're not seeing it as a human. They're seeing it as this bizarre kind of through the filter of just basically through filters that no other human would ever look at something through. Yep. And, and it's gone and it's lost. And unfortunately, there's very few clients with, who are self-aware and also secure enough and brave, let's face it, brave enough um, to retain that energy that they got when they saw that idea and hold on to it with you and protect it with you and fight the good fight. And in my experience, 90% of clients, whether some clients I've had are aware of it, they'll turn around and go, look, I know, I know I look like an idiot. I know we bought this work and I know we're making this work and let me explain why. Many don't. Many feel, I think, either they're not aware of it or they're embarrassed about it and that creates tension. Um, but ultimately, if you get to a situation, and this is why, you know, uh, uh, you know, Trogo Fire was a classic example. We had some huge clients and we had massive wins and massive losses. And I'm not blaming that all on clients because there was mistakes made all around. But, you know, a big part of that was I want an agency is only as good as people. You know, not talking just the creative people, let's just say it's people. And if you've managed to curate an amazing gang of people who are obsessed by creating transformational work, and that's what makes them stay late at night. And that's why they're not, you know, they can make more money around the corner, they can, you know, all that stuff. They're, mm -hmm. they're there because of that. Mm -hmm. You have a contract with them to keep feeding them and keep supporting that work. Yep. And And the reality is... If you win a client, and for all the best reasons, the client says, we're going to go there with you, we're going to do amazing work, and six months in, it is absolutely clear that they're not going there. You know, one thing, unfortunately, I've never been able to do with clients or staff is bullshit them, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I've never had the ability to, to sit down with some young copywriter and say, I know the idea you presented was amazing, but this client won't buy it, but that's good. It's, all, it's a big picture thing, mate. It's big picture. Mm -hmm. I've just gone, I feel you, you know, and I'll try and sell it again. And if they keep saying no, we're going to have to get rid of them. Because frankly, as much as that sounds heroic, it's also practical because I have been fired by clients for no other reason than I've done the opposite. I've actually surrendered, done the work they've made us do, mm -hmm. and then three months later been told by them they're firing us because the work's not good enough. And I, and I just stare at them and I go, <laughs> Oh, my God. This, you know, I'm on a parrot and you wonder why I drank so much. Kangaroo you know? Valley, here I come. Kangaroo Valley, here I come. <laughs> hello, hello, Lagavulin. <laughs> well, um, I guess it's kind of just thinking about uh, that meant, leads me to, to think about the fact that you must be doing all these other new ideas, the new ideas where someone who actually really, really wants you to do something or a startup or, mm. or a new connection. Mm. Is that where, do you see that much more potential of, of, of it, uh, a great idea being realized? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I, I think um, for me, and, the, and it's hard, but I do believe you need to get skin in the game. Hmm. You know, the, the, the cliche of agencies being partners is hard to believe. I mean, the reality is there was a time, I mean, I have had famously some clients who were partners. My, my beautiful client for, um, 
for Tiger Beer. You know, she stayed with me all the way through Droga 5. When Droga 5 closed, she stayed with me again and we kept going and that's why I started Marcel. Mm -hmm. Ironically, she's um, she's been so successful, she actually uh, left that job recently and she's now the, the global head of all of Cadbury's. Um, but she was, so she was someone that, I never felt like a supplier. I never felt like a slave. She yeah. listened to me. We listened to each other. We're friends. Very rare, though. Um, mm. So the projects I'm most interested in at the moment I'm doing, I've invested in. I've literally invested. I'm working on, you know, um, two TV shows at the moment um, where um, the other people working on those shows and, and actually the subject of the show, we're in partnership. Mm. And if we fail, we fail together. Yeah. I think it changes. I mean, I, I would do quite a bit of that too. Um, uh, have a skin, the, have some skin in the game for a project, and and it for me, it doesn't change my focus. I still will give it a hundred percent. But for the people in, in the team, it changes their perception. Mm -hmm. When someone's working on a project and they're just doing it by the hour, they're doing it as another client, drop numbers and all that kind of stuff. It's a very different attitude towards um, a just different commitment to it being a success. Mm. You think everybody wants it to be a success, but the reality is. The, the people that you're working with don't necessarily are on the same page regarding that because really, when you think about it, like when we do, uh, I say a branding project or whatever we might do, is it our, our you know, we will make our recommendations for a kind of brand strategy and the, you know a, a brand, the look and feel and the communications, etc. But at the end of the day, we're going to get paid for that contribution. We're we're not it's not we don't going to risk our business or close our business down if this is a success or not. And I think there's something in that too around. Uh, what does success look like? And I think we're shifting towards more of a, you know, more organizations are wanting a guaranteed success. Mm. Uh, whereas, I don't know, maybe advertising is notoriously well, it's a procurement. Look, it, you know? look it's, it's again, this is hardly rocket science, but we live in a procurement driven business. Our industry is, is, is not, it's not for debate. I mean, yeah. it, it is driven by uh, procurement people, rightly or wrongly. I, I would suggest wrongly. Um, and the metrics they use are very linear metrics. Um, hours is a metric. Yeah, it is. KPIs are a metric. Yeah. You and I know that if you work on a personal project, as, as kind of flowery as this sounds, I am investing my heart and soul and passion. And those are things that a procurement person can't put on a metric. Mm-hmm. And if, I, if, if, if you have something that's important to you and I believe in it and you say, Nobby, I'm going to give you 30% of this. If we, if we win together, we win together. If we fail together, we fail together. Mm -hmm. You know right then I'm not looking at a timesheet anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I am waking up at four in the morning because I go, oh, God, this could be it. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of goes back to be soft on the people and hard on the work. It's, yeah. it's, it's it, whatever you can do, whether you're a client or a creative director, to get people to go to that hidden place mm -hmm. that's got nothing to do with rationality, it's got nothing to do with hours, it's to do with intensity, then you're going to get great work. It's interesting that because, I mean, I, I, you yeah. know, I would like you've been doing it for a long time. Uh, there are times when it's relatively easy, you get an idea pretty quickly, mm. and um, sometimes it's incredibly hard. Although I have to say, I mean, you and I, I think we've laughed about this before. I, I did a job the other day, and uh, someone said, hey, Nobby, can I meet you for a coffee, and blah, blah, blah. I've got this really difficult brief, and, and we're halfway through the coffee, I went, boom, there's the idea. And they went, wow, so quick, you know, that mm. took you three minutes. And I said, no, motherfucker, that took me like 31 years and three minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really. I mean, it's like the, the, that is the truth. 
The truth, and that is why, you know, I find with projects, this whole idea of time is ridiculous. Mm. You know, it's not important. Mm. It, it, it's being in a mindset where you know it's the right answer. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to wrap it up now, but it's been uh, fantastic talking with you, Nobby. Um, i obviously inspired by, me, by you and all the things that you do and have done. Um, there's a lot more left in you, <laughs> a lot more opportunities for you to inspire others, do your art, connect people with opportunities, etc. Rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Thanks, mate. No, I really appreciate it. And uh, look, I, um, this is the first podcast I've ever done, so uh, oh, cool. I, I wouldn't do it for anyone else. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about Designing Your Life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective.